Hey, welcome to episode seven of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. On this week's episode, Ben and I talk about the importance of song arrangement. We talk about the aspects of song arrangement like melody, rhythm. Uh, We talk about things like the frequency ranges of your instruments and what's important to consider there when you're doing a song arrangement. And we talk about some common song structures. This is really an often overlooked topic. We think there's going to be some kind of magic spell we can cast in the mixing phase that's going to give us all of those wonderful things we want like width and power. But a lot of that actually comes from arranging. So enjoy. You're listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, DIY Recording Guys, episode seven. Here we are. Here we are. (laughs) I'm Vadim Karaz from Calm Frog Recording, and with me, as always, my co-host, Benjamin Hull. From Dream Loud Studio. Thank you guys for joining us again. What's the topic for today, Vadim? Today's a very important topic. It's uh, it's the elephant in the room, (laughs) pre-production, right? It's, It's what you need to prepare before you go into recording, right? Before you record your songs, working out all of those little details of what you're going to play, when you're going to play it, in order to build a solid song that's going to translate well into recorded material. Yeah. Did I summarize that? Yeah, I think pretty good. And and even more specifically, um, a subcategory of the pre-production is the arrangement, and that's what we're going to specifically be focusing on today. And I think maybe that word can be used interchangeably with a few different other things, but uh, we'll be talking about, I guess we could say, three main different categories. First is fundamental parts of a song today. The second would be typical song structure. And the third, we're going to talk about um, the energy of a song and how it ebbs and flows. So I do want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, We had this idea to come up with um, this topic because of... My friend, Jess Wegley, she asked a question uh, on Facebook, or she she posed an idea to talk about. So I'll just read her comment real quick. So she said, can you please talk about song arrangement in your podcast? Beat, beat makers especially seem to lack an understanding of verse, hook, verse, hook, bridge, hook type format. I think producers in general can greatly benefit from knowing standard songwriting arrangements and how to bring out the best of each section. Uh, I think that's a super great point because even if you wouldn't consider yourself a producer and let's say you're recording your own songs or recording your own band, um, somebody in your group or external to your group is going to have to take that role of producer, even if it's not formally mentioned. Um, But the producer's role is basically to structure the song and make sure that from a high level that the song sounds good. Would would you agree with that, Vadim? Or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and like you said, any number of people can play that producer role. And and I do want to like speak to myself, uh, my teenage self here, when I used to think that, you know, something like song structure or, you know, learning about typical arrangements was like, kind of like, what do you mean? You know, I, I'm writing my own songs here. I don't need any help writing my highly mediocre songs <laughs> i can i can do it all on my own and that's it took me a long time to realize that really these things um like traditional song structures are tools they're tools in your toolbox that can help you when you get stuck um you know you're still writing your songs but if you're if you get stuck and you're like oh, i'm not really sure this chorus doesn't really hit hard enough Going to these kind of this your your toolbox and pulling out something that's maybe been used successfully before is is a great option. So that's really um, one of one of the big things we'll be talking about today. Can't agree more. And I think a big thing to keep in mind too, um, being DIY people trying to do all this stuff ourselves, uh, I can totally relate to that young teenage arrogance of wanting to do everything on your own. And you think, I, well, I think at least for me, I'd look up to my heroes, whatever rock bands I was into, and have have the illusion that these guys are doing everything themselves. I can do everything myself. And 
a lot of times it wasn't true at all. Uh, a lot of those artists that I looked up to had whole teams of people helping them write and produce. I mean, I wasn't even aware of what a producer was back then. And uh, for most of my teenage years, I would say the Red Hot Chili Peppers were my favorite band. And just understanding how important the role of a producer com comes in there, th those guys probably could have never wrote a pop song that appealed to a large swath of people without a producer helping them because they were essentially just a jam band. And the, the reason I bring all this up is just to say not to be so hard on yourself or so arrogant to try to take on all of these different roles yourself or not look to some outside help because each area when it comes to either recording or songwriting or just being a musician, I mean, that takes its own 10,000 hours just to be excellent at, right? Mm, yeah. Well, where do you want to start, Ben? Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I would like to dive in first with the fundamental parts of a song. Um, this is up for debate, but I found a pretty uh, handy guide on the internet that broke it down into five different categories. So we'll just go with that and maybe talk about how these categories are a little bit fluid. Maybe you could break them down into less categories or more. But the first one uh, that I found was rhythm. So that would be percussion, drums, and some melodic instruments. Two, melody, uh, whatever is the part that makes you want to sing to or hum to in a song, I would consider the melody. Yeah, it's the part if, if somebody said, how does that song go? Yeah. It's the part you would sing, right? That's, that's the melody. Even if in an instrumental song, you could, you could hum it or whatever. Exactly. That would be the melody, yeah. Um, three would be harmony, and all the harmony is is basically other melodies along with the melody. They are simultaneous notes along with your melody that um, form a chord, which I guess a chord would be two or more notes. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Because power chords are two notes. Yeah. Essentially. They're the greatest of all chords. <laughs> they are the greatest. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I take a lot of this stuff for granted. And that's another um, caveat I wanted to say diving into all of this is a lot of this stuff I just picked up from osmosis from listening and playing a lot of music. I didn't sit down with you know a textbook and study all this stuff. But it is helpful to think about it in a little bit more of a studious way because you can kind of reverse engineer and pick apart why does this famous song work so much as a song structure? Why, why does this song structure happen a lot of times? Or why, why is there always seem to be a rhythm guitar, a lead guitar, a bass guitar in most popular rock songs? You know? Yeah. That is really interesting. I, I, I do often think about that, like how we settled on these conventions, but you know, they do seem to work well. Mm -hmm. In Western, certainly in, this doesn't apply to music around the world, but in Western music, certainly 4-4 four, four tends to be the dominant meter. So you have four beats to a measure and a quarter note uh, per beat. A quarter note gets the beat. Um, there's a lot of different, it's basically just a way to subdivide how you count the rhythm of a song. So like we talked about with melody, if I asked you to sing a song, you would sing the melody. If I asked you to tap out or count a song, uh, you'd be you'd be probably counting the or tapping out the meter. Actually, I wanted to ask you, Ben. Did you when growing up learning to to play? Did you read music? Yes, I did. Not okay. not very well because I'm I'm much more. Um, my ear is pretty good, at least for mimicking stuff. I don't have perfect mm. pitch or anything like that, but. Um, if you played something for me, I could pretty quickly figure it out and play it back. So that was always my on bass specifically on pretty much anything. My, oh yeah, my ears just pretty decent when it comes to that kind of a thing. The good side of that is, I mean, it makes it quick to learn songs. The downside of that is, I would always, even though my mom taught me to read music, I would rely on that skill a lot more than reading. You know what I mean? So my reading mm. was never really that good. But you faked it basically. You were faking it. Yeah, I think people a lot. would put sheet music in front of you, and then you would just listen and just and just pick it out, and then pretend you were reading. I got you, man. I I played that game. I took <laughs> piano lessons. I'm I'm hip to it. Yeah, of course. My my ear was my ear is not good, but what I would do when I was a kid was just watch 
my piano teacher's hands. Really? And just mimic mimic that. Yeah, for some reason that that worked for me. And uh, I cheated my way out of a good music education. So <laughs> I have I have that. <laughs> That's amazing, man. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's so interesting to see the different ways people learn. I'm much more auditory. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. Which is good, which is good, because music is auditory. Right. <laughs> really, music notation is the best way to visually uh, put it into a, a time meter or a measure so that somebody Definitely. else can repeat it back. Because, you know, sometimes I, I've done those gigs, cover gigs, where you just get 40, 40 sheets of chord symbols over the lyrics. And if you don't know the song, I mean, every single song is basically going to sound the same, right? Because you have no idea yeah. what the rhythm is supposed to sound like or or any groove. So that's why... That's a good point. That's why meter is important. Yeah, yeah. Sheet music is definitely a, a richer uh, medium for transferring uh, not like uh, information on, on a song than tabs. It's just so freaking annoying to me always, let, like the way the key changes are handled, right? And like, um, I, you know, actually, have you, you ever, this is a way, we can cut this out because it's way off topic, but have you heard of like Nashville notation? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, where everything's kind of based off of the one. It, it seems, I, I haven't actually played, like looked at it that much, but um, yeah, sheet music, I don't know. It, it's definitely, it definitely has a lot of information, but there's such a barrier to learning it, at least there was for me. And once I learned it on piano, I never took the time to learn it on guitar, which which became my my main instrument. But anyway, so back to uh, back to, back to song list. structure. I think you were talking about uh, meter, right? Yeah, I was talking about fundamental parts of a song. So that was the fourth one, yeah. meter, and the fifth one uh, would be the key. So that was the high level. Okay, let's let's dive in a little bit more now. So the first the first part of the song, rhythm. I think this is my favorite part, even though I'm a bass player. But I tell people all the time I play bass like a drummer. I just love messing around with rhythms. It's where the groove is. I, to me, it's the most fun part of a song. If you hear a song that really makes you want to tap your foot, it's probably because of the rhythm. I spent a lot of time focusing on the rhythm, making sure it's good. Um, what can we say about this? Like The rhythm can come from a variety of different sources. It doesn't have to just be the drums. It can be a percussion instrument. It can even be... Um, it can be another melodic instrument. It can be the bass guitar at times, especially in funk music. Uh, in jazz, a lot of the times, the bass guitar is keeping more of the rhythm than even the drums are, which is kind of reversed and backwards to thinking, but it's definitely true. In singer-songwriter genres or indie music, you'll have acoustic guitar and maybe even mandolin that's kind of strumming and keeping the beat. So a lot of different sources that uh, rhythm can come from. It's important to think about and note what kind of a feel do you want from the song? Do you want it to be really punchy and in your face? Then you probably want all the instruments to be hitting at the same time. There's, there's something that I kind of had to learn the hard way. I, when I started, I do a lot of like prog metal and prog rock, and that's what I started out doing because I started out writing that kind of music. And my initial instinct was get the guitar to kind of just sound as brutal and, and mean as possible. And I was like, I don't even need a bass guitar. You know, I'm just going to I'm just going to make my low end really chug on the guitar and then I'm just going to have the drums and it's going to be fine. And through the course of playing around with this stuff, what I came to realize was that at least for rock, like hard rock, that power can't be generated by one instrument. It really comes from the entire range of the frequency spectrum kind of hitting you at once. Mm -hmm. And different instruments have different parts of the frequency spectrum that they are kind of good at, let's say. So like a kick drum covers that really low 60 hertz kind of bass that hits you in the chest range. If you've ever seen like a live show, you know, when, the, when they're doing sound check and that kick drum is going, you could kind of feel it in your chest. The bass covers a lot of a lot of the uh, the rest of that low end up to where the guitars take over and kind of the mid range, and then the cymbals kind of are the sparkly thing at the very top. So if you have all those instruments hit at the same time, kick drum, a bass note, a guitar chord, and a cymbal, 
that's the whole frequency spectrum hitting you in the face. And so when you talk about coming up with rhythm sections, you want to consider those types of things. You can have cool sections and cool instruments playing off of each other, but if you if you're going for like that power, that that tightness, yeah, having those instruments coordinate is really important, especially in the rhythm section. I think I, I probably use a lot of Red Hot Chili Pepper examples in this episode. I'll try not to, yeah. but I, I think they do this in a lot of their songs. And if any of you are fans of the Red Hot Chili Peppers or have heard some of their songs, maybe um, it'll pop right into your head what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, maybe it's worth going to check out some of their more popular upbeat songs. But a lot of times what they'll do is in verses, sometimes all three instrumentalists are playing different rhythms. And then in the chorus, they'll all come together on the same rhythm. And it Mm kind of gives... So the verses are more kind of like this, oh, there's this cool polyrhythmic stuff happening. Because there's nothing wrong with doing that. You don't have to play the same rhythms. Sure. Sometimes playing different rhythms together can create the illusion of like a third new type of rhythm that evolves from that, which I love that kind of stuff. But you can't keep that up for a full song because it it just gets a little bit too, I feel like it's too exhaustive to the listener (laughs) to listen to just so much craziness all the time. So they'll do that for a few bars in the verses. And then in the chorus, they're all together playing the chorus rhythm. And it creates this cool, uh, this cool contrast between maybe more mellow part with a more in-your-face punchy part. So that's definitely a cool yeah, thing you could do. That's that's a nice foreshadow into the last section we're going to talk about today, which we'll get to with, with energy flow mm. and how kind of energy moves through a song. That's a great way of... I'll give you the the two word summary of yeah. uh, that whole section is is tension and release, right? Three word summary. Mm. So that's a great way to have a little bit of tension and then have some release in in the chorus. To uh, as listeners, that's kind of what we that's what pulls our you know our heartstrings, so to speak. That's what kind of yeah gets us going. So yeah, I don't think I have too much to say about melody, the second fundamental part of a song, um, other than. I think sometimes it can be useful to have a keyboard handy or even a MIDI controller. And if something, the two scenarios I can think of are maybe as a vocalist, let's just say you're writing your own song, because I have this problem a lot, where uh, I feel like my vocals are too stale or they they sound too too same-ish or... I'll wind up singing the same intervals or or melody patterns a lot of the time. So it's just nice to have a keyboard handy where I can maybe experiment around with some different intervals that maybe I wouldn't try naturally just singing them. So that can be a way to experiment around and figure out different things. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's such a great point is that you may have more freedom on a on something like a keyboard to to play around and try different things. The other thing, I I even use my guitar sometimes. My my wife is actually a, a really good singer. And um one thing I learned, this is this is um a cautionary bit, but I used to write a lot of vocal lines for her on the guitar. I had to kind of ban myself on her range. So I had to know where on my guitar her vocal range was, where she was strongest and where she was maybe reaching. I had to do that in order to write lines that she could sing. Uh, But yeah, having that keyboard or whatever instrument you're most comfortable with and writing a melody using that instrument is a great way to um, improve your creativity. Because I don't sing at all, but when I try to come up with vocal line singing, I do inevitably sing like the same two things. Yeah. It's either song A or song B is what <laughs> I have. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of the same. I'm way better at helping somebody else that already has a good idea come up with an even better idea. It's so hard for me from scratch though. I'm, I'm getting better though. And, and that's that's actually leads into maybe the next thing on, on harmony. Yeah. This, this is the other place where I use, I have a little MIDI controller on my desk. I do this all the time in sessions when we're done recording the main vocal track i will pick out the parts for the main vocal track on the keyboard just using a synth or something like that and then seeing them on the keyboard i can then come up with a harmony part a lot of times singers have a hard time they're so used to the main melody 
Uh, it's hard for them to even envision a harmony kind of organically. Uh, but I can play it on the synth and be like, this is going to be a cool harmony. They can then learn that by listening to the synth. That's a great and point. And we can, we can record um, vocal takes of those harmonies. That's a great point. And maybe even another note on recording vocal harmonies. I, I feel like you just can't ever have too many vocal harmonies. And this is a personal preference of mine. But a lot of times a vocal sounds huge in a chorus because there's so many layered harmonies like an absurd amount of layered harmonies that are just kind of buried but back behind the main vocal. And I didn't yeah. realize it until I started recording a lot more and listening a lot more intensely to other professional-made mixes and realizing, dang, there are like probably five to 12 layers of vocals in here. So don't be afraid of... Yep. Uh, don't be afraid of putting in even weird harmonies sometimes because you can always bury them. I had the same exact epiphany where I couldn't, in pop songs, I couldn't get a vocal to sound kind of big enough. And, and the analogy here to rock, which I'm more used to, um, is that it would be like playing a single note on a guitar and trying, you know, for those really heavy parts. Like, no, you need the power chord. Right. Well, in, in pop music, that's exactly what's happening in those pop productions. They have the main vocal coming down the middle. And then all of these harmonies, like you said, it can be, you know, eight, 10 layers of doubles. Uh, coming from the sides, and you, can, you they're kind of buried, but it gives this this powerful uh, vocal sound yeah. that uh, we're all used to hearing in pop music. Yeah, exactly. I think one thing to keep in mind is, especially from an arrangement perspective, and I think rock guys kind of have a step up on this because it's already pretty much a sign that you're going to need to write a rock song. You need a drummer a bass player, a guitarist, and a vocalist. And because that's already been kind of figured out and decided that that's a really good format for a rock song, a lot of people that want to form rock bands don't have to think about, well, what instruments do I need to fill up the frequency spectrum? But when I started experimenting around with electronic music, all of a sudden I realized I didn't really know what I was doing as far as filling up the frequency spectrum because mm. all I had was just example of example of example of bass synths and I was just started stacking them and so in some of my <laughs> in some of my initial electronic productions I would just have like 20 different bass synths stacked on top of each other because I was going for that really big and loud electronic or EDM sound and I couldn't figure out I have so many bass synths in here how <laughs> how come i'm not getting it but that was a really that was a really more basic exactly more. yeah <laughs> but that was a really big epiphany for me and what i realized is that what i was trying to find was this um combination of bass instruments mid instruments and treble instruments that all work together and kind of all fill up the frequency range spectrum in a way so that they're kind of all hitting you at the same time and that's such an important thing, I think, for people that aren't doing traditional rock and roll to think about. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, as, as in the mix, as mix engineers, we often think about that piece of information in terms of frequencies where we use equalizers to help certain things cut through the mix. But it's really even important in this pre-production and arrangement st stage where, for example, if you have like a keyboard player and a guitarist and they're playing in the same register, they may be stepping on each other. And it mm -hmm. may be hard to get those, those two instru instruments to be distinguished. So shifting the keyboard up an octave, for example, or something like that, can all of a sudden you can hear both the guitar and the keyboard. Those are the little types of things that um, are really worth thinking about before you, before you hit record. Hmm. Yeah, there's this one band that I'm really a big fan of. I'd call them Indie Electronic. But they have, I mean, it's a rock band, but they have an electronic sound to them. Uh, their name is Joywave. And they do a lot of unique stuff with the guitar and keyboard in particular. Because in some songs, the keys are more, the keys can take more a role of the bass guitar. Mm. Uh, in other songs, the keys are the rhythm and the guitar player is only doing a lead. And it was a little bit, 
mind bending to me to kind of see them pull that off live because you just assume if you have one guitar player in a band, they're going to be playing rhythm guitar and holding big chords. Mm. But a lot of times he wasn't doing that. A lot of times the guitar player was playing like a cool lead or a cool lick and he was relying on the keyboard player with a heavy amount of distortion to kind of fill up everything. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, I'm assuming you've seen Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, uh, when uh, who was it? David St. Hubbins leaves the band and they ask the keyboard player if he could, <laughs> uh, if he could cover his part. And he says, well, I have two hands, don't I? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. That's, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and, and framing it in the context of, like you said, with what part of the frequency spectrum is this instrument responsible for is a good way of thinking about it mm -hmm. because yeah, for rock, it's easy. We're all used to those rock instruments for other types of music. You can frame it slightly differently and, and get a similar result. Yeah. Cool. All right. What's next? So maybe just a quick note on meter. So that's the subdivisions of the music. And I guess the biggest question is, why do we care about this at all? <laughs> because most music is in 4-4. Four, four. Do I really need to think about this at all? And sometimes it's easier to feel a song out if you could subdivide it in a different way. Like, for example, if you're playing a shuffle beat or something that has a swing feel to it, six eight time one two three four five six one two three four five six i've seen drummers count off a song uh in four four one two three four and then start playing in six eight and yeah it's just really confusing and i think it i think it can break up the the feeling and and um not allow all the instruments to play with the same groove yeah, I I am guilty of that. I like to count everything off in four, <laughs> even though even though almost none of the stuff that I personally play and a lot of the the bands I work with is a lot of it is not in four four. Uh, it's just a convenient way. Devil's advocate, then. So how do you get away with it? I'm curious. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to. You're operating on the premise that everybody kind of knows knows the song and knows what they're doing. Gotcha. Um, so it's just a one, two, three, four is just kind of like the classic way to count things off. But um, even like I find for me, I write a lot of odd meter stuff in mm. my spare time. I will often write riffs in 4-4 four, four because it just feels so natural. We're just so, it's so ingrained in us. And then I'll mess around with it. You know, I'll you know, add a beat and make it 5-4 or something like that. So um even in pop music, I mean, there's a lot of songs out there that are an odd meter that you probably don't realize are an odd meter. It can be done. Like I think um, it's like Fell on Black Days by Soundgarden was a pretty uh, popular yeah, that's song. A good one. That's an odd meter song. Spoon Man, a lot of the songs on that album actually. Um, but like Possum Kingdom, if you remember that old 90s song, mm. I think that was in some some like 7-8 or something. So you can do it. I mean, don't lock yourself into 4-4. Four, four. Sometimes it can be, you can get really interesting grooves playing around with odd meters too that's that i promise that's the only math rock pitch i'll uh <laughs> i'll throw in here for this episode yeah <laughs> i think another thing too well the reason that probably most songs are in four four is because it feels the best to humans and you can leverage but you can leverage the other meters if you want people to feel uncomfortable and the one song that comes mm. to mind is actually if you if you've seen the movie lord of the rings i think it's um Mordor, the Mordor theme is in 5 4 because the drums go bump, 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 bump. And that's oh, no way. It's a it's a 5 4 measure. And because it doesn't repeat on like uh, on an even number, it gives you this uneasy feeling. So if you want people to feel uneasy, that's kind of a way you can go about it. That's a really interesting point. Also, Mordor was super metal for sure. Oh, but, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's a really interesting point, Ben. I never, I never thought about that. But you can, you can totally use that. Yeah, an odd meter to build some of that tension before going into something a little more familiar. That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So the last, um, the last fundamental part of the song that we have is the key. So, I guess the most obvious question is, how do you go about picking a key? And I think the I'd subdivide this into two different 
categories. So one, do you have a vocalist? If you have a vocalist, you should probably pick a key that your vocalist can sing in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, uh, for sure. And if you are if you don't know what key your vocalist can sing in, sit down with them and play along and see if they can actually hit the notes or not because you're, you're just going to make it harder for everybody if your vocalist can't actually sing to it. That's the first thing. If you don't have a vocalist or you're not worried about that, um, pick a key that makes the most sense for the instruments to play in. You know, I've seen a lot of bands pick arbitrary keys or just pick... The one thing that actually I ran into with my old band, Big Atlantic, is we wrote a 10-song album and I think we had five different keys. So two songs per key and they sounded great and we recorded them. The thing we didn't think about though was when we went to play them live, that meant we needed five different guitars, each of us to play these songs. So that's another thing to think about, you know, sometimes it's just easier to pick all the same key if you're at least in the same area of the guitar. And what I'm talking about is, you know, D major versus D flat or D sharp. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And even with arranging in general, um, it's something to, you know, your live act is something to consider. If that's part of what you want to do as a musician is perform live, you do need to consider what you can and can't do. So like you may have an awesome vocal harmony that your singer sings twice. And if they can't do that live, you're going to have to make a decision there. If it's an integral part of the song, then you uh, you may be in trouble. So I'm I'm always I always err on the side of you know making the recording sound as good as it possibly can yeah. and do what serves the recording. But I am sensitive to the fact that like you know you got to consider your live act and and what you can pull off and how you're going to do it. Yeah, totally agree. Well, that took a lot longer to cover than I realized. So um, yeah, we'll cut a bunch of it. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, all, all good, all good. Um, the next thing we wanted to talk about was typical song structure. And you could subdivide a song into, most songs into six different parts. And maybe I'd even say seven. So a lot of songs have an intro. You'll have a verse portion. Some songs have a pre-chorus. Other songs go straight into the chorus after the verse. Um, then you'll have a chorus which is normally the biggest part of the song. And some songs have what I like to call a hook. I'm a huge fan of a hook. And a lot of times the hook comes in in the intro, but very, uh, very sparsely. It's really subdued. And then the hook is the instrumental part that happens after a chorus. I love doing that whenever I'm producing or writing a song. Another part of a song is the bridge. That's the other part. That's the part of the song where you do something related to the chorus or verse, maybe done in a different way, maybe with different chords, but it's the part that switches it up. And then a lot of times you'll have a chorus and then an outro. So I guess we could just talk about that real quick. Um, I know, Vadim, you, you're working a lot more in prog rock. Uh, how much do you think about these parts of the song? Well, let's say I, I think about more where the song is going and how it feels. So I'm I'm yeah. blessed slash cursed with a very short attention span. Mm. So a lot of times I'll be listening to a song and I can just, you know, if I can just kind of feel when, when the energy seems to be dragging a little bit. I, don't, I am sensitive definitely to different parts of a song. But as far as like what goes where, it's more of how does it feel and am, am I keeping the listener's attention engaged throughout the song, which is really the key. Yeah. I think another way you can look at these parts of the song too, especially from a vocalist perspective, is how do each of these parts help you tell a story? Because each song, even mm -hmm. if it's instrumental, it's the point of it is to convey a message or tell a story. So I think a lot of times... Your chorus is kind of the thesis. It's what your song is about. It's the main idea. And a lot of times the verses are kind of just the explanation of what the chorus is about. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that exactly it, it ties into what we said with um, you know tension and release. So a lot of times you can you can use these different sections to to build to the chorus, which is kind of like the big release, right? A lot of times. So, but you, what you're saying is more even in terms of lyrics. It's you're mm-hmm. you're telling you know you're you have a narrative that you're kind of following, and the narrative has to make sense. Just like when you're telling a story, the narrative has to make sense and follow a certain arc, right? Yeah. Exactly. And I think you're 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 going to see that in pretty much every pop song. It's going to make sense. It's going to tell a story. It's not going to be random. So it's something worth thinking about for sure. Okay, so with that being said, there are I found one, two, three, four, five different major song structure types. So we'll talk about them briefly. And we'll talk about how we never use any of them except for one. <laughs> but <laughs> but the uh the five different main song structure types are, and they divide this into each letter is a different section type. So the first one is A-A-B-A. And the most recognizable example of that is Over the Rainbow, which is crazy. Mm. I never would have thought about it until I saw that example and I realized, oh, it is true. There is a B section, which is a bridge because it's all verse and then there's a bridge. I got to think about that. Yeah, I don't even know how how it goes. You want to sing it? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to try. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I could do the main part, but the the bridge is a little bit hard because it bounces back and forth, I think, in a second interval, which is really hard to do, so I'm not going to try. I'm not a vocalist. I never claimed to be. (laughs) The second... uh, The second type of song structure is A-B-A-B. And a lot of these kind of songs come from uh, the big band swing era. So Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra is an example of that. So there's a first section and a second section, and it repeats. And Mm. I have played a few of those songs, but I'm not super familiar. That's not what I listen to, and it's not what I write. And I don't think there are too many pop songs that take that format. And you feel free to chime in if you have different examples, Vadim, of any of these. Well, the, one of the examples I'm going to play is actually it's A, B, A, B, C, B or something like that. So there's okay. an A, B, A, B section to it, uh, kind of like a main riff and a verse. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. So that was the next one I actually was going to mention is the A, B, A, B, C, B. And that that is pretty much every single pop song I'd say 90% of modern music takes that structure. Okay. And cuz that's basically verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus. And right. there are slight different variations that you can do to that. Like you can add pre-choruses in or what I like to call hooks which are post-chorus um or outros, but it's all essentially that that song form. Mm-hmm. Um the next one is ABA which is the most recognizable example of that, although it's barely a song, is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. <laughs> <laughs> so as you can see, like I'm really stretching for the, reaching for the stars to find examples, but it's just because... No, no pun intended, right? Yeah, no pun. Well, that very much was intended. Cheesily <laughs> okay. intended. Uh, and then the fifth, the fifth different song uh, structure is just simply AAA, and this is a lot of traditional songs, um, like Amazing Grace or hymns of that nature. It's just uh, one verse that just repeats. And that's more of, I think, maybe religious music or something that's heavily lyric-based. Okay. I mean, with all of these song structures, uh, the point is is you're you're finding the balance between something that's repeatable that your listener can latch on to. So repeatable parts without being boring, I think is the point. Because there's no way you could write an AAA song structure and have the same lyrics over and over and over again. Right, right. Like that's just like a, a nightmare. Row, row your boat type of thing, yeah. Yes, exactly. So uh, it's interesting to me that I think if you would research and look up well, what songs have that AAA song structure? They're probably going to be the most lyrically complicated. Probably mm. very few repeating phrases or words, in fact, because the music is so repetitive. 
Right. Whereas, right. The, it's almost like the music is just a vessel for exactly you know, the poem or the the words. Yeah. Um, and then another in some of these other song structures, you might have you might have really similar parts, but the chords are changing underneath. The sections are changing. So that's where the the interest is kind of placed into the song. Uh, so that that's like the five major different ones. And I wanted to add another one to that category because Vadiv and I both work and play in those genres, but that would be a linear uh, song structure, which basically means anything goes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you find this a lot in, I don't know if you find it in any pop music, but you definitely find it in prog rock. Just random key changes, random meter changes, random rhythm changes, and not a lot of repeating parts. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of, um, I'm trying to think like, Probably the closest thing in in pop. Well, I mean, this is more popular back in the day with like King Crimson and Yes. Mm. They had some very kind of linear song structures where songs would just kind of evolve and change. Also, like some of those Yes songs were like seventeen minutes long. <sighs> yeah, crazy. And uh, but yeah, that's um, it's challenging. I mean, it's challenging just to keep people's attention and and um, but but it can yeah, it's can be done if. Uh, <laughs> If you still pay attention to where it's going and where it's been, as you were saying that, I can think of, I can't think of the specific examples, but I know I've heard some modern songs where they'll have like a, maybe it's even a verse-chorus type of thing happening, and then the second half of the song is something completely different. Yeah, that's well. One of the ones I wanted to talk about as an example for the next section actually sort of oh, does cool. that. It's that that Billie Eilish song, "Bad Guy." Oh, "Bad Guy" is a cool song. Yeah, which is a very cool song. And there's that whole. I wrote out that it's kind of like A A B C A A B C, and then there's that like filthy trap section at the end, which is awesome. And that's like not you know that's not something you hear a lot, but that's that's a really popular song mm. that has a totally different section at the end that comes out of nowhere. Mm. It's, it's great. It's really kind of refreshing. I think that's cool, very cool. Well, um, this might be the perfect point to transition over to you because that's all I had to say about song structure. So take it away with the third the third part of this podcast. Yeah, the third section is very much tied to what we just talked about. It's how you arrange those, what you can do with those different song structure segments in order to keep the listener engaged. So if you think about like, like I said, I have a very short attention span. Modern listeners have very short attention spans. If you watch like a movie trailer, it's constantly changing camera angles and camera scenes. It's to constantly keep you engaged. Mm. And this is kind of what we're trying to do when we're arranging our song. And I wanted to actually read this short little quote I have from a book. Uh, it's a book by Mike Sr. He's um, from Sound on Sound. Mm. It's a great book called uh, Mixing Secrets for the Small Studio. I actually highly recommend it. I think it's probably the best book I've seen on mixing. But he talks about this in the context of mixing, but it's equally applicable in the context of arranging. And what he says is, in a lot of, this is a quote now, in a lot of cases in commercial music, you want to have enough repetition in the arrangement that the music is easily comprehensible to the general public, but you also want to continually demand renewed attention by varying the arrangement slightly in each section, as well as giving some sense of an emotional buildup through the entire production. Hmm. So I think that's, that's kind of a really nice way of putting it. And the way I like to think about this is if you kind of, this is like maybe a little too mathematical, but... Hmm. If you think of a graph, like you think of the horizontal part of a graph as being like time. So, you know, from when the song starts, as you progress through the song, you have these different sections. And then the vertical part of the graph, the y-axis, is like the energy, right? And you, what you don't want to have is a flat line because very quickly that gets tedious. If you come in, you start your song with just a shredding guitar solo, and then you just continue shredding for like <laughs> the next yeah. four minutes... People are going to get bored because you're only going to be, you, you kind of, you have to, they're only going to be shocked and impressed for that first split second. That's true. Right? And then it kind of, you kind of get accustomed to it. So even with all of these different song structures, like let's say the one that you mentioned, Ben, A, B, A, B, C, B, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to have all of those A's be identical because 
the first time you play an A section, it's novel and people are interested. Then they have the chorus, presumably the B part, right? Then you can go back to that A part. If they've heard it before, you're losing them, right? right? They're instantly kind of, their attention dwindles. So you have to think about what can you do to make that section more interesting? And there's kind of two ways to approach this. You can just add little components uh, to kind of spice up that energy. And it, it's a very subtle change can make a big difference. Um, so for example, if you've recorded like something like an egg shaker throughout, you know, you could record that egg shaker throughout the whole song um, and then just pick sections like, okay, the first verse didn't have an egg shaker. We're going to add it to the second verse. And just that little, it's just going to add that little bit of sizzle and energy mm -hmm. that, uh, to keep people engaged. So a good way to, to kind of think about this when you're arranging your song is to record it like on your cell phone or wherever, just on your main instrument, record it the way you have it. Then sit down with like a pen and paper and listen to it through the lens of a listener and just see where your attention starts to wane a little bit. And where it does, it may be time to add some elements or take something away. So, and even like you can get really formal with this where you can like list the elements in your busiest riff. Let's say your chorus riff, you have a kick, a snare, an open hi-hat, a bass guitar, all these different elements. You can list you can list those elements out, write them out, and then make columns for each of the song sections. So here's my verse section, here's my chorus section, then I go back to the verse, and for each of those columns, you can indicate kind of visually which instruments will be playing and which instruments will not be playing. And sometimes just doing this exercise visually, you can see like, oh, okay, no, my verse one is too busy, there's nowhere to build from there, right? Right? Or so it's it's kind of a nice way to to visualize your um your song. That was really well said. A lot of the a lot of the time I even think about taking away elements to add interest. And that can kind of be it's interesting how sometimes taking away elements can add more energy or add more excitement. But one of my favorite things to do is to drop out like in the second verse i'll drop out the guitars and then all of a sudden you just have a vocal naked with the percussion and maybe the bass guitar especially if the bass guitar is doing something really cool and mm. a lot of times just kind of peeling back that curtain i don't know if it's like the the tribalness of just hearing drums with vocals just elicit elicits some kind of like caveman response from from us, but I feel that a, I feel that a lot of times because sometimes those mid-range instruments, whether it's keys or guitar, like I like them as much as anybody else, but they can kind of mask what's happening underneath. And all of a That's, sudden, yeah. all of a sudden, whenever you pull them away, then you just have the naked rhythm, and even that, and sometimes can uh, influence a little bit interesting change of rhythm in the song so maybe for one example let's just say you have a kick drum that's just pounding boom 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 but you have a bass guitar part that's kind of like so it's something a little bit more syncopated now let's say you drop out the kick drum all of a sudden in the second verse now you don't have those quarter notes going instead you have a only the bass guitar to hold the rhythm and it's going to make your listeners say, oh, wait, that's a really cool rhythm that I didn't hear before. So those are the things that pop into my mind. Yeah, that's yeah. you read my mind, actually. That, I was going to talk about taking things away, and that is a really wonderful technique. The, what you, what a, a good way to think about this is like you want to have those step changes in energy. Mm. That's really what when people are, you know, like the most uh, kind of <laughs> say like, I, know I probably overuse analogies, but like, the Dunkin' Donuts sugar donut version of this is like, you know, like the Harlem Shake, like a song like that, where yeah. like it's very obvious what's happening, it's very formulaic, and it's still so satisfying, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. where there's you you take a lot of things away and people know it's coming because they've already heard the drop, but you take even more away, you strip down the production even further, then when it comes back, it's even more satisfying. And mm. what that is, kind of visually, is a step change in energy. And this is uh, what you mentioned is a great way of doing it because early in the song you want to catch you want to capture people's attention right away. So you may have a really rocking first verse, 
and then escalate for the chorus. Now, when that when the next the second chorus hits, you want that chorus to hit even harder so you can strip down the second verse. Now you've taken more elements away, and then later when you bring them back, it's it's that big step change in energy. You want to get a couple of those. I think I forget there's some like conventional wisdom on like two or three big drops like that, you know, in a mm. in a song. Um, I agree and with a that. great example of yeah, a, gr- a great example of that in um, like a, a, a famous song, and this is actually something that's you kind of hinted at this. A lot of modern songs are using. Uh, they're they're doing a pre-chorus, or yeah, they're using a pre-chorus in a bridge. Mm. So the bridge section is like a very stripped-down pre-chorus. A good example of that is like the weekend song "Can't Feel My Face," which is mm. like a huge hit, mm-hmm. right? If you listen to that, the the bridge is a really really stripped-back pre-chorus, and he's singing uh, an octave lower. That really brings the energy down, and then the, the the last chorus that hits is like the most massive chorus. Mm-hmm. So you get this epic step change in energy, and um, it's really satisfying. Yeah, one thing that's not really used too much anymore uh, is a key change too to change energy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like uh, "Man in the Mirror," Michael Jackson. Yeah, song. That's, uh, that used to be. I mean, probably in the '80s, like pretty much every song like had a key change. Yeah, and what is it like? It would be the the last chorus. You would do the the key change up to. Yeah, normally a whole step, I would say. Which could which could be a cool technique. There are modern songs that do that. I just think it it became so cliche that people stayed away from it. I think. I know, but it's so funny because like uh, I think there's a Beyonce. There's some Beyonce songs that do that, but. It's so like when you're at a wedding or something, right? And you have those songs with the key change. Uh-huh. Everybody just lights up oh, when yeah. that key change. Oh yeah, so that be Ben. Let's bring back the key let's change. Let's do it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> Except because we're in metal, it would be a key drop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. I love it. Just oh, drop a whole. <laughs> just drop a whole whole step. You got to tune during the song. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe during the drum solo. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Um. Yeah, so that uh, that song I wanted to mention, that Billie oh, yeah. Eilish song, I was listening to it. It's um, that's it's a really simple song. There's not a lot of elements to it, and so it's really easy to hear what's happening. Where like there's a verse that's very minimal, and then they just add some like just some snaps and a couple of vocal harmonies. Um, you can listen to that. Just go listen to it and just see what they're doing with bringing elements in and then taking them away. And actually, it does exactly what you said, where like I think the second verse is a really stripped down verse, mm. um, which is really cool. I think it's, it's like just vocals, claps, and snaps. It's really kind of a nice effect. That's very so cool. Check that out. I, I remember feeling the same way when I first heard that song, Royals by Lord. And, yeah. And my first impression was, there's nothing in this song. It's just vocal and kick drum. But if you go back and listen to it, there's actually a whole ton of harmony happening but it's all in the vocal harmonies massive amounts of vocal harmonies and that's her vocals are kind of taking the place of all of what traditional instruments would take which is a cool approach to it too that's the other example i wrote down actually i totally agree with you listen to that it's like there yeah it's it's a kick some snaps a little bit of synth and then just vocals and it's it's a really well produced song Mm -hmm. i think so yeah, how can um, how can our listeners apply this to their own music? And I think one of the most obvious things is, especially if you're in a ba- if you're in a band, it's important to recognize that just because you're playing an instrument in a band doesn't mean you have to play the whole time. Don't have to play the whole song. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> it is for, <laughs> it is funny to say it that way, but like I'm talking to my teenage self as well. Like I yeah. wanted to. Sometimes, and this would be called overplaying, but I would play during the quietest parts of the song where it was just supposed to be like a vocal whisper and I'd be up high on my bass doing some weird thing and I thought I was so cool. But (laughs) what would have been even cooler than that would be not playing at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's big of you. That's big of you to admit that. (laughs) Well, thanks, but it it does make a big difference. And I think if... uh, well, I think honestly, a lot of times what happens in rock bands is that you feel awkward if you're on stage, especially performing, and you're just not playing anything. But 
I think it's okay to, you know, don't be self-conscious about that. Like the band is carrying you, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the studio, you have even more flexibility there, right? You have even, even less of a need for everybody to be playing right. at right. the same time. So definitely consider that in your arrangements. As far as in the studio, I think it's a lot easier. But if you can convince your band or think of writing in that way where let's add parts and that might not be for every song. Like uh, in some songs, maybe everybody is playing the whole way through, but just that it doesn't have to be that way uh, is, I think, sometimes a really eye-opening um, realization to have. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and uh, as far as you know, preparing to record, I do recommend writing things out. Writing almost like it's almost like a like a comp sheet, uh, where you know you have the the song sections listed and what's happening in each song section. It can really be a nice way to focus everyone for one thing, and for another thing, it's a nice checklist then to make sure you've recorded everything you were intending to record. Yeah, good point. Good point. Did you have anything else to talk about when it comes to um, energy? No, I think that pretty much covers it. How about you? I think so. Um, the one little outlier comment that I wanted to mention was just song length. And hmm. uh, interestingly enough, for most of recorded music history, the average song length has been between three to five minutes. Really? Consistently. And there have been a, okay. there have been a lot of songs that have been way longer than that, but... It's pretty much universal that really popular songs and especially songs that are on the radio are in that three to five minute range. And if you want to be on the radio, which I mean, that's a high order to get on nationally played radio is very hard to do. But if your song is over four minutes, they'll cut it. Yeah, that's, you know, and tell me if, if you if you recall this the way I recall it, but I, I remember in the 90s songs were longer i remember like you know rock songs like alice in chains or whatever i i feel like we're five five and a half minutes long but now it seems long right nowadays songs are shorter than that yeah i i half agree and also i i also at the same time remember a lot of radio edited songs that i didn't even know were radio edited because i heard them on the radio first and then i got the album and i was Uh, like oh yeah like there's a lot of rage songs like um like Killing in the Name has a huge long bridge yeah. that's not in there. I know some corn songs were cut. Uh that's a good point, yeah. But they were done in such a creative way that like, you know, they I mean, the radio station's basically being the producer at that point. Uh you don't need that part of the song. <laughs> that's interesting. Do you think you think the the radio stations were doing that or were the bands providing no, no, no. radio edit radio edited material? I think that was probably well. The radio stations work heavily with the record labels, so I think that was probably a record label executive decision, and not yeah. just a radio station cutting it. Yeah, because you know there was even cases where they would like edit bad. They would replace bad words with less bad words that could be said on the radio, but it was clearly the singer doing it. So I, I assume that all that kind of all those decisions were made in post-production or whatever before the band left the studio. I guess the last argument when it comes to that is, you know, are the are the radio stations and record labels bad for doing that? Or do they, I mean, partially because it kind of sucks to, you know, if you're a fan of Rage Against the Machine, you want to hear the full Rage song. But at the same time, like, I can't deny that they understand human psychology of listening to an interesting song and they realize, ah, we don't really need this whole extended part of this song in here f you uh i don't care what you tell me or whatever yeah that you know i had the same experience with that i, I remember oh, really? I bought that cassette <laughs> and uh, i was like i actually thought when i i'm not in favor in general of editing music but that song seemed too long to me after <laughs> yeah after i listened to it on the record i was like eh, the bridge is a little long yeah so well said. I hope I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, it was a lot of fun to do. And if you have any other arrangement questions, please reach out to us on our Facebook community, the DIY Guys uh, Recording or DIY Recording Guys community. I always mess that up. Take care, guys, and we remind you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Take care. We'll see ya.
If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com. And you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com. Hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.